Well, good morning, and thank you, worship team, for leading us in uh, music today and in worship music. Thank you, Paul and Diana, for your report. It's good to have you back. And also, thank you, Bill Carell, for sharing your testimony. And to me, it was the power of praying parents, the power of praying parents. And it was, a good, it was good to uh, rehearse some of that with you, Bill. And uh, I remember your parents well and miss them. And so we are thankful that you were willing to share your testimony with us this morning. Uh, before we get started here, this, oh, and by the way, thank you for reading the text for me today. I appreciate it. That it was nice to hear uh, you join in in unison, read Psalm 100. Before we start, though, in your bulletin is a little bookmark. And uh, oftentimes people ask me about resources, Bible study resources. We've used many of these resources, especially in ladies' ministry, but this uh, sacrascript ministry out of Dallas, Texas, begun by some Dallas Seminary graduates, and I believe it started in uh, Charles Swindoll's church. And uh, on there is a QR code, so if you have a scanner, you can scan it with your smartphone and then download their app, and you'll have access to the resources. Some of them are free. Some of them cost a few bucks. Uh, but if you'd like to go deeper in the Word with uh, Bible study resources that I can wholeheartedly recommend, because there's much out there that I can't wholeheartedly recommend, but uh, with Sacroscript, I'm confident that you will get good study material, accurate interpretation and guidance as you go through that. And so just check that out. Uh, this will probably be in the bulletin again next week if you don't happen to have one, or you can go to their website and you can read it on the insert there. And so I uh, look forward to any of you who enjoy that Bible study material. Well, here we are at uh, just previous to Thanksgiving holiday, one of my favorite holidays of the year. And it is good to give thanks as we've sung about giving thanks. If we've focused on Thanksgiving, thankful for one another, thankful what God is doing in Grace Point, thankful for what he's doing around the world. It is great. Every time I hear Paul and Diana give a report, Again, or any missionary, actually, that is overseas, again, it just impresses me that we are part of something bigger than ourselves. And that is so important to recognize the body of Christ around the world from Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, until he decides uh, to consummate this age, the church age. So I am thankful for that. But this time of thanksgiving. Now, if you were with us in 2010 on the Thanksgiving or the Sunday before Thanksgiving, you have already heard this message. Uh, but I have a word from you because E.V. Hill, the late pastor out of Los Angeles, gave me permission to repeat a sermon. He said, first of all, back in 2010, half of you were not here, okay? And out of the half of you who were here, half of you were not paying attention. You were distracted by stuff in your purse or your work schedule or whatever it was. You weren't listening. And out of the half that remains, half of you forgot what this message was about. And uh, so that boils down to about two of you will remember this message. The one who writes in her Bible, and you know who I'm talking about. She puts the date down and puts the outline right in, next in the margin of her Bible. And uh, so that's good for me, and that was very encouraging to me. So the two of you who remember this message, you have my permission to kind of daydream. No, you don't really. This is good to rehearse back uh, to this letter or this uh, psalm out of Psalm 100. And this will complete our just short journey leading up to Thanksgiving in the Psalms. We've taken some select psalms. Remember, the psalms are a collection of Hebrew poetry. 
And most often in uh, the Jewish circles, they would be sung. They would be put through uh, music and they would be singing. Especially this psalm was a psalm where the pilgrims, the Jewish pilgrims, would come from all over the then known world because they'd been scattered after their dispersion. And even up into Jesus' time, up until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the Jews would come at certain times of the year back to Jerusalem, Mount Zion, to worship and to bring a thanksgiving, especially the thanksgiving offerings that we find in Leviticus chapter 7 and the verses following that, if you want to read about uh, that festival, if you will. But oftentimes it wouldn't even be the Thanksgiving festival. They would come at any time when they came up to Jerusalem and they would sing this song and they would sing it antiphonally. In other words, one group would sing verse 1 and 2 and another group would sing verse 3 and it would go back and forth echoing through the hills of the Judean wilderness as they went up to Jerusalem. But I was thinking about Thanksgiving and reading this psalm and I remembered the story of two old Norwegian farmers. Now, I can do Norwegian jokes because I'm Norwegian by marriage, okay? And uh, my wife will stand behind me on this one. Okay, but two old Norwegian bachelor farmers uh, met in town one day, and uh, one looked terrible. He was so glum and downcast and depressed looking. And his friend came up and said, what is wrong with you? What's going on? You look as though the whole world has forsaken you. What has happened? And uh, the first farmer said, well, let me tell you, three weeks ago, my uncle died and he left me $40,000. That's not bad, so the first one. He said, but you see, continued the first guy, uh, two weeks ago, a cousin I never met died and left me $85,000. Well, that's wonderful. Sounds like you should be grateful and thankful for this unexpected blessing in your life. Well, the first depressed, downcast guy said, you don't understand, he, uh, he interrupted. Last week, my great-aunt passed away, and I inherited a quarter of a million dollars. The first Norwegian bachelor farmer was just perplexed. He said, then how come you look so glum? And the first guy said, this week he lamented, nothing. <laughs> Running out of relatives, wasn't he? Henry Ward Beecher wrote these words, and I'm quoting him. Pride slays thanksgiving, but a humble mind is the soil out of which thanks naturally grows. A proud man is seldom a grateful man, for he never thinks he gets as much as he deserves. You know, that seems to be uh, the analysis of the society and the culture we live in today, isn't it? We are one of the richest nations in the world, greatly blessed materially, and yet there is a, a dearth of spiritual awareness of where those blessings come from. You know, historically, Thanksgiving, this holiday we celebrate, did not, meet, uh, did not begin with the pilgrims in Plymouth Colony in 1621. It began some 20 years early, really, or 11 years earlier in Jamestown, Virginia. There had been a severe winter, and it reduced that colony from 409 people to 60 in one winter. Can you imagine how many funerals each day that they had to complete? 409 people to 60 people. Those desperate survivors were praying earnestly to God for help. And then finally, when a ship arrived thereafter from England with supplies, the colonists gathered around to express their thanks for God's supply in their lives. No feast marked that day, just a prayer meeting expressing Gratitude to God. 
And so that's what this psalm is. It is a psalm of thanksgiving. In fact, when you look at Psalm 100, uh, it begins with a psalm of thanksgiving. That is the identity of it here. And it's the only psalm that is thereby identified as a psalm of thanksgiving, although there are others in the literature, in the genre of the literature, that are considered psalms of thanksgiving. This is the only one so labeled in our Bibles. Psalm 100 begins a series, or ends a series, that begins in Psalm 93, and it's the crowning finish, and it's an expression of thanksgiving. And it is a great psalm to focus on today, this Sunday before Thanksgiving. Let me pray as we begin. Lord, thank you for this psalm. We pray for understanding. We pray that you would teach us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. It's pretty easily to outline Psalm 100. It basically breaks into two major portions, verses 1 through 3 and 4 through 5. There are seven imperative verbs in this psalm which help guide us with commands, these verbal commands that come through this psalm. There's basically two invitations and two reasons to respond to the invitation. Verses 1 and 2 is an invitation. Verse 3 is the rationale for why we should respond. Verse 4 is the next invitation. And verse 5, again, is the reason or the rationale why we should respond to this invitation. This psalm invites us to expressions of joy and thanksgiving. In fact, in verses 1 and 2, you notice that the word joyfully occurs in verse 1, verse 2, gladness, again in verse 2, joyful singing. So we see that there is joyfulness about what we're called to be. And so there's three marks of a joy-filled life in verses 1 and 2. Joy is marked by testimony. You all read the first line of this psalm, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Joy is marked by testimony. It's a verbal witness. Now, we of the Northern European extraction are not very expressive with our emotions, are we? And, uh, you know, you go to a Latin church or a Southern Mediterranean church, and you will find people greatly emotively involved in worship because they recognize we are body, soul, and spirit. We are tri, uh, we are people of, uh, of uh, three parts, essentially. And so there is this shout for joy, this verbal witness. Psalm 100 is basically, and this is so appropriate for the Mayhews, also it's a missionary psalm. Psalm 100 is a missionary psalm because it has been said that in temple worship, as these Jewish pilgrims would come up, come up from all ends of the world, from Mas- Macedonia, from Greece, from Mesopotamia, from Egypt, from as far away as the Jewish communities were spread, when they came to Jerusalem, when each crowd would arrive, a priest would meet them at the gate, and he would tell them to turn their backs on the temple and to shout joyfully out to wherever they came from. And what it was, it was symbolic of testifying of the true God. And that's where we see them here. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. It's an invitation to the rest of the earth. And that's what we're about, is we're about inviting those who don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. In fact, I almost thought if I could catch everybody, we would line up outside with our backs to this building and shout to our neighborhoods. (laughs) You know, shout joyfully to our neighborhoods, wherever we came from, our other cities and villages around us here. There's three marks. Joy is marked by testimony. The psalm is meant for the whole world. 
We don't want anybody missing out on the grace of God. It invites all lands to make a joyful noise to serve God here. And that word Lord is Yahweh, his personal name, his proper name, if you will, with gladness. And to come into his presence with singing. Serve the Lord with gladness is the second mark of joy, is service. Serving the Lord with gladness. You know, oftentimes we serve out of duty. We serve out of commitment. And sometimes that can wear us down because if we are serving the Lord in our flesh, it wears us down, doesn't it? Because our flesh does not desire to serve others. But with a change of heart because of Jesus Christ, he can change us and we can serve with gladness, this idea of joy. Joy is marked by service. Thirdly, joy is marked by gathered worship. Come before him and, and with joyful singing. So there is the command to shout, to serve, and to come. Those three imperatives mark this invitation, and we're to shout out to the whole world, come, and to serve him with gladness and gather in worship. The joy-filled life. Three reasons for the joy-filled life, or the rationale is found in verse 3. Know, and here's the fourth imperative, the fourth command. Know that the Lord is God. There's three reasons for the joy-filled life. It begins with knowing that God is God, and we're not. Know by experience that the Lord himself is God. The founder of the, the religious or the faith organization of Buddhism in the Far East, when he was a child, had a deep desire to know if there was a God and who was God. And he went to a famous wise man in his village, and the wise man took him out, and they sat by a pond, and they talked about how to find God. And suddenly the wise man grabbed this man, young man by the throat and plunged him under the pond and held him down until he was thrashing around and he was almost ready to drown and he pulled him up and the young man gulped. What are you doing? Wait a minute. You said you wanted to, me to find and to know God. And the, the, the man said that when you desire to know God as much as you desired your next breath of oxygen, then you will find and know God. God is God and we're not. Secondly, God is our creator. Look at the second stanza or the second couplet in verse 3. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. There's no such thing as a self-made man. In fact, there's a humorist in Britain who said, uh, speaking of a person, said he is a self-made man and he worships his creator. And we don't want to fall into that trap for sure. There is no such thing. Author James Harriet, uh, you may uh, be familiar with him. He was a veterinarian, and he wrote about an unforgettable experience when he was newly, a newlywed, and he was starting out in his career. He said his boss had encouraged him to take his new wife out to dinner to a really fancy restaurant, but James Harriet, he re refused at first because as a young veterinarian, he couldn't afford that restaurant. Uh, his boss said, oh, just go ahead and do it. It's a special day. And so he reluctantly agreed, took his wife, and went uh, to this restaurant. But en route to the restaurant, he got a call at a farm to examine a farmer's horse. And having finished the routine exam, he returned to his car and drove to the restaurant, unaware that his wallet had fallen out of his coat pocket and he didn't have any money with him. But after a wonderful meal, he reached for his wallet and discovered it was gone. And quite embarrassed, he was offering the, 
the waiter somehow to make this up. And the waiter said, not to worry. Your dinner has been taken care of. As it was, his boss had already paid for the dinner in advance. God has done the same for us. Jesus uttered on the cross, it is finished. It's the Greek term paid in full, tetelestai. When he took our sins upon himself, took our place on the cross of Calvary, he completed it fully. God is our creator. God is our redeemer. We are his creatures. Notice that it tells us here in verse 3 that it is he who has made us, not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you have been twice born, twice created. You were created at your birth uh, through his process, and we are the sheep of his pasture. For believers in Jesus Christ, we belong to him because he paid the price for us. We are sons of God. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. It's reminiscent of David in Psalm 23 uh, about the ownership of God, that we are his sheep. There is security in being his people. There is provision for our needs by the great shepherd of us sheep. Reminds us of John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd, Jesus taught. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. And so the knowledge that we are secure, that only good things, that he has provided for us, and he provides for our needs. God made us and remade us. There's an expression of gratitude. We are his. We are all his. Uh, there's one more point in this phrase, and it is the phrase, we are his. Regardless of what, way, what may happen to us, we are still his. Troubles inevitably come to each and every human life. All of us know that. There's adversity, there's difficulty, there's pain that comes into our lives. But no matter what, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you belong to the great shepherd. Sickness may come, you are his. You may lose your job, you are his. Death comes into our immediate families, we are still his and will always be, be, be his. God the Father said in Hebrews 13:5, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's why I encourage you in the sovereignty of God and that he is working all things out for his glory and for the good of his people. Every night when you lay down, put your head on that pillow, very briefly, no matter how tired you are, rehearse the day and thank God that he is in control of all things, no matter how out of control your life may seem and the world may seem to you. Jesus said, surely I am with you always, Matthew twenty-eight twenty. The apostle Paul was so convinced that he said, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God it is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8, 38 through 39. A great declaration of our security and the assurance we can have that we will be in heaven no matter what. The security we have in Christ. In verse 4 is the next invitation. It's three marks of a thankful heart. He moves from this joyfulness into the thankfulness in verse 4 where we see the next imperative verb, enter. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name in verse 4. God gives us access, first of all. 
Think about that. The God of the universe who did not need to reveal himself to us, didn't even need to create us in the first place, but he created us and gave us access, his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. The picture is, of course, of the temple on the Temple Mount when the Jewish pilgrims would come and the gates would open and they'd go into the courtyard there to worship and bring their thanksgiving offerings and to be blessed. And God is worthy of our gratitude. Give thanks to him as that next imperative there. Give thanks to him. And then the seventh imperative is bless or praise his name. God is worthy of our gratitude. He delights in his children. And here it's this corporate or communal worship, if you will. It's the whole group gathering in worship. And that's what the psalmist is calling us to, to enter and to invite us to give thanks and to praise or bless the name of the Lord Jesus, or praise God. There's some things on praise uh, about how we worship. And we see in the Old Testament that worship is visible. Worship is visible. It's really not a passive activity. Oftentimes we think of coming to church as passiveness because you sit and listen, and yet you need to be active in your mind, in your emotions, in your understanding, in your attention, because, by the way, you have one of the hardest jobs there is, and that's the job of listening. It is difficult to listen because you can listen uh, far faster than I can speak or anybody can speak, and therefore your mind can wander, so it, it takes discipline. But praise should be visible. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 47, 1, we see the worshipers clapping, not applauding, but there's a clap. It's like, oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Not the idea of applause, but a sudden loud clap that draws attention to the fact that God is receiving praise from a worshiper. Lifting our hands, Psalm 63, 4, thus I will bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name, Psalm 134. By the way, the New Testament didn't tell us not to raise our hands, so it is still legal to do so. Uh, Lift up your hands in the sanctuary. Bless the Lord. They're lifted towards uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, It's a sign of adoration and praise. In dancing, oh boy, here we go. Here we go. Now I'm really meddling, aren't I? But in uh, 2 Samuel 6, 14, we see King David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. And uh, David contemplated the presence and greatness of the Lord. He got a case of happy feet. Now, you need to be thankful that I don't take off dancing because I am a terrible dancer, and so you don't want me doing that. But anyway, praise is visible. Praise should be vocal. He talks about shouting, about singing. It's not done in silence, and true praise is a vocal expression. And praise should be volitional. In other words, it's an act of the will. Oftentimes in worship ministries, we talk about facilitating worship because we recognize we cannot force anybody to worship God that comes here. And so to prepare your hearts for worship, it is a volitional decision. God is good. He's faithful. His truth stands forever. And we need to make a rational decision to praise his name because of his character, who he is. It's an interesting, I was reading about Bible translators in West Africa to the Maasai tribe. And the Bible translators, as they were translating the Bible, they were trying to come up with a picture of how the Maasai would say thank you to another person. And what they say literally is, my head is in the dirt. My head is in the dirt. When the Messiah expressed thanks, they literally put their forehead down to the ground 
They want to acknowledge gratitude and humility. And what a beautiful picture when we think of before the God of the universe, my head is in the dirt, you know, with gratitude, with humility uh, about that. And another African tribe, according to the uh, Bible translators, express gratitude by saying, I sit on the ground before you. When one of them wants to express gratitude to another, he sits in front of the house of that person whom he wishes to express gratitude and just sits there in humility for a length of time. So if you see me out on your front sidewalk sitting there just quietly, it's okay. I'm just saying thanks. John Henry Jowett, who was a British preacher in the 19th century, said this about thankfulness or gratitude. He said, gratitude is a vaccine an antitoxin, and an antiseptic. What did he mean? What did Jowett mean? He meant that gratitude, like a vaccine, can prevent the invasion of a disgruntled, discouraged spirit. Like an antitoxin, gratitude can uh, prevent the effects of the poisons of cynicism, criticalness, and grumbling. And like an antiseptic, a spirit of gratitude can soothe and heal the most troubled spirit. Isn't that true? You know, when we're critical, when we're upset, when we're angry, it is tough to be thankful, isn't it? The two don't go together at all. Three reasons to be thankful. Verse 5, here is the rationale or the reason. Tremendous verse that Paul and Diana used here. And there are three things, as they pointed out. Inner, <clears throat> excuse me, for the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. We see that God is good, the Lord is good. There is a saying that goes around. I don't. I haven't heard it myself, but it said that in uh, some churches and congregations, uh, the the leader, the pastor, will cry out, "God is good," and then the congregation responds, "All the time," and then the leader will say, "All the time," and the congregation will say, "God is good." Are you with me? Let's try this. God is good, all, all the time. You've got it. Remember that. If you remember nothing else from this morning, remember that. God is good. And by the way, this is not a relative goodness. We talk about people and say, oh, Joe Blow there, he's a, he's a really a good guy. Well, that's relative, isn't it? Because we're comparing him with other people. This is absolute goodness. This is no sin, no mistakes, no wrongdoing goodness. This is absolute perfection when it tells us that God is good. Secondly, God is loving. His loving kindness is everlasting. It is without end. It is infinite. And that's where I start losing it. When we talk about infinity, since we are finite creatures, we have a difficulty understanding the infinite character of God, but it will go on forever and ever and ever. The word loving kindness here is the Hebrew term hesed. And it means, it's, it's the equivalent of our New Testament word, grace, unmerited favor. His loving kindness goes on eternally. Now, there are days, perhaps for you, many days that you don't feel very lovable. Ask my wife, there are days I'm not lovable. There's struggles, you know, in life. And yet, God still loves you. And the question is, and this will really pinpoint what you're believing in. Is there anything you can do to make God love you less? On the flip side of that, is there anything you can do to make God love you more? The Bible says, no, his loving kindnesses is everlasting. 
His grace, his mercy, his love never fails. I want to emphasize that. God is for you. He's not for your sin. He's not for my sin. But he is quick and he is faithful to discipline us. Hebrews chapter 12. To be in right fellowship with him. He's given us the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Who leads us in the truth. Jesus Christ is our great high priest in heaven. One of his uh, ministries in heaven. He's our advocate. He's our intercessor. He's our great high priest. Why do we need a priest? Because even though we believed in Jesus Christ, for me, it was at age 28, and I, my sins are forgiven, yet what about the sins that I commit now? When I confess those things, they're fellowship issues, and I need a priest, and the priest is Jesus Christ. And he is faithful, and he will not fail. Thirdly, in verse 5, God is faithful. He is faithfulness to all generations. We heard in a testimony this morning, God's faithfulness. Praise God. <clears throat> For parents, saved as adults, prayed for their children, let them, and now Bill and Debbie are grandparents doing the same thing for their grandchildren and their children. Isn't that amazing? So there's this generational aspect. Now, you may not have that kind of history, and you may not have grandchildren, but yet you can be praying for somebody and reminding them that God is faithful. God is good. God is loving. God is faithful. That is the rationale for the fact that we can have a thankful heart today in this season. Lloyd-John Ogilvie on this psalm wrote that the psalm makes a strong case for gladness as a sure sign that we are living by grace and not by our efforts. Let me repeat that. He make, this psalm makes a strong case for gladness or joy as the sure sign that we are living by grace and not our efforts We are reminded that God is in charge, that we belong to him, that his mercy is everlasting. The best gift we can give to others is to recapture the goodness of the Lord for us. That will overflow in joyous attitude and countenance that will inspire and encourage others. Of course, this morning is for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can acclaim these promises. We can look at these imperative verbs. We can accept the invitation understand the reason behind it. But first of all, we must know Jesus Christ is our Savior. As Diana read the passage about John 3.16, for God so loved you that he gave his only son that whosoever, that if you believe in him, you will not perish but gain everlasting life. And may I emphasize again, that is the greatest miracle that will ever happen is when God opens your eyes to the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. And we look at scripture, we see that there are consequences And there are conditions for those consequences. I'm always curious when I read scripture, okay, if I see a consequence, I want to know the condition, what to avoid, what to accept, what to do. And in that verse, it's very clear. For everlasting life, it's simply to believe in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, what he promised. Let us pray this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and mercy.